Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Fabiani Duarte, chair of the ABA Law Student Division. I'm a third-year law student at Mercer University's School of Law in Georgia. And I'm Madison Burke, governor of the Law Student Division's 12th Circuit and a 3L at the University of Washington School of Law in Seattle, Washington. Our show today is presented by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. In this monthly podcast, we interview guests and cover topics of interest for law students and recent grads. From finals to graduation and the bar exam to finding a job, we hope this show is a trusted resource for you, our listeners. For today's show, we welcome Daniel Lukasik, a trial lawyer from Buffalo, New York, and founder of the website LawyersWithDepression.com. Dan was diagnosed with depression in 2000, and following his recovery, he created his website to help law students, lawyers, and judges cope and recover from depression. Dan's work with depression has been featured in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, The National Law Journal, and several other national and international publications. He's also the executive producer of the original documentary, A Terrible Melancholy, Depression in the Legal Profession, which has been viewed by mental health organizations, colleges, and universities around the country. Dan has also run a weekly support group for lawyers with depression since 2008, and is launching a life coaching practice in April to help law students and lawyers. You can check that out at yourdepressioncoach.com. Dan graduated from Buffalo State College with a degree in psychology magna cum laude in 1984 and the University at Buffalo School of Law cum laude in 1988. He's not only listed in the publication The Best Lawyers in America, but last year, he was named one of the top 10 most respected lawyers in his community. Dan, welcome to the ABA Law Student Podcast. Oh, it's a real privilege to be on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So Dan, we can call you Dan, right? Oh, Dan's fine. Nobody calls me Daniel. All right. Only your mother when you're in trouble. Only my mother. (laughs) Well, Dan, thanks so much. Like Madison said, we're just thrilled to have you. Today, we want to talk about something that we are told about and that we kind of talk about in private, but unfortunately still kind of remains in the shadows. But uh, more and more, especially in the legal community, the stats on depression are just huge. I think I read on your website or in some of the materials you've created that lawyers suffer from depression at a rate twice that of the general population. So that's around 20%. So if there's 1.3 million attorneys in America, that's almost a quarter million attorneys in this country who are suffering with some sort of depression. What can you tell us about those sheer numbers and why is that so prevalent in the profession we're about to jump into? Well, I think one of the things we could start off by saying is that most studies show that depression begins in law school. There have been a couple studies which show prior to entering law school, law students had about a 10% rate of depression, which is what the general population is. But soon, those numbers started to escalate after they entered law school. And by the second semester of their second year, those rates rose to as high as 40%. And putting that in perspective, that would mean out of the 150,000 law students in this country, 
60,000 struggle with depression by the end of their uh, second year, spring semester. So I think what we see is a pattern or some problems beginning in law school. And after young people graduate from law school, those numbers drop back down, but they don't drop back down to what the general public numbers are. They stay at about 20%. So those are just whopping numbers. To put it in perspective, the World Health Organization, for example, and the National Institute of Mental Health called the 10% number for the general population an epidemic. So if, in fact, lawyers and law students struggle for much higher rates, what would you possibly call that? Catastrophic? You'd have to invent a a term for it. Yeah. I mean, that's tremendous. You know, 10% is an epidemic. 20% is a pandemic or, or something even worse. It's a virus almost. You said it's something that starts in law school. Is it just the pressure that we seem to find in there, the amount of work? What, what do you think we can pin that to? Well, you know, it seems to me, and there's been studies done uh, on this exact topic. Dr. Andy Benjamin, who's out at the University of Washington in Seattle, studied a number of law students. And what he found was that People come into law school with a certain set of values and aspirations about why they're becoming lawyers. And soon as time goes on in law school, those values start to change. They become more concerned with the best job, the best grades, you know, uh, making it in the legal profession. So there's a drifting away from those values, and that tends to cause uh, distress amongst a lot of law students. The other thing that I think is important to say, this is a problem for lawyers, but in particular uh, law students, and this is where it starts, we've all heard the expression learning to think like a lawyer. We, you know, In my first year of law school, I think it was contracts. My professor said, well, you know, I'm going to teach you to think like a lawyer. And what exactly that meant at the time, I don't think any of us knew, but there's been research done in this area. And I think the most uh, important research was by a guy named Dr. Martin Seligman. And he wrote, he's known as the positive psychology expert. He's the father of positive psychology. And he wrote a great chapter in a book, Why Lawyers Are So Unhappy. And I just want to quote something from that book. And he says, uh, Positive psychology sees three principal causes of the demoralization amongst lawyers. First is pessimism, not defined in the colloquial sense, such as the glass is half empty, but rather as the pessimistic explanatory style. These pessimists tend to attribute the causes of negative events as stable and global factors. For example, it's going to last forever or it's going to undermine everything. The pessimist views bad events as pervasive, permanent, and uncontrollable, while the optimist sees them as local, temporary, and changeable. Pessimism is maladaptive in most endeavors. However, and it's a big however, pessimism is seen as a plus amongst lawyers because seeing troubles as pervasive and permanent is a component of what the law profession deems prudence. A prudent perspective enables a good lawyer to see everything conceivable and every catastrophe that might occur in any transaction. The ability to anticipate the whole range of problems and betrayals that non-lawyers are blind to is highly adaptive for the practicing lawyer 
who can, by doing so, help his clients defend against these far-fledged eventualities. And he says in conclusion, if you don't have this prudence to begin with, law school will seek to teach it to you. Unfortunately, though, a trait that makes you good at your profession does not always make you a happy human being. I think that's profoundly true, and we see that with uh, many young people who come in to law school. They're bright, accomplished, overachieving, but then they have to learn to think like a lawyer. And I think a strong element of that is learning to think pessimistically. And as time goes on, I think what can happen to uh, lawyers once these people go out in the real world is that that pessimism can turn to cynicism. And I think one of the components, one of the pillars of depression is negative thinking. So in fact, that pessimism, which is, you know, an adaptive skill for lawyers, turns against the depressed person and the depressed person starts becoming ruminative, negative feelings start circling over and over again in their heads. So this is really, you know, a strong, strong component of why it's a problem. Great. Thanks, Dan. Wow, that that got deep quick, man. That's very powerful. But thank you for uh, giving us that perspective from uh, Mr. Seligman. So one thing that I think is a problem with a lot of the different struggles that are unique to law students is just misconceptions about those struggles. So for example, besides what we're talking about, like depression, I think other mental illnesses or substance abuse are also similar serious issues that uniquely affect the legal profession, but that we as lawyers misunderstand or have misconceptions about. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you've seen in the legal profession about depression? Well, I think one of the biggest is that we, um, we confuse unhappiness with depression, sadness with depression, being stressed out with depression. And they're really not the same things at all. So I think that as a matter of uh, educating people, that's the best place to begin. What in fact is depression, clinical depression? And it's not something that really a lay person can diagnose. It's really something a mental health professional would have to diagnose. But I think one of the most significant things that's important to bear in mind is what makes depression so terrible is that it's, uh, it impairs us. It impairs our daily functioning. For me as a lawyer and many other lawyers with depression, they have a lot of problems with concentration. And, you know, concentration is our, you know, our tools of our trade, one of the most important tools of our trade. We, you know, we have to read, we have to think, we have to analyze. And if your concentration's been impaired, sometimes dramatically, that compromises your ability to get your job done. Hand in hand with that, I think, is very significant sleep problems. Some people sleep too much. Some people sleep too little. Uh, I recall as a lawyer when I was first diagnosed being profoundly tired, bone weary, and falling asleep maybe at 9 o'clock at night. But I would wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning. And as tired as I was, I couldn't fall back to sleep. So what I would do is I would shower, shave, and put on my suit and go to an all-night coffee shop by myself and sit there and um, you know read or write and wait for the sun to come up. And then I would go into the law office. And this was before I was, you know, anyone knew or before I was diagnosed. So I think, you know, when we think of uh, 
we think of sadness or unhappiness or being burnt out, there's no really particularly strong stigma about those things, right? We don't think of people poorly because of having those kind of experiences. And I think the other thing is that those reactions, those emotions are very human. They're normal. There's nothing very normal about depression. It's a persistent, saddened state that doesn't leave. Things that you normally would cheer you up or make you happy don't. And as I would tell people when I lecture about this, I would go on vacation, you know, to Florida and be with my family. And uh, I was depressed on vacation. If anything, it made me even more despondent because you can see people around you happy and having fun and enjoying their families. And I was incapable of enjoying uh, my family and uh, the experiences. So there's some profound differences between those two experiences, depression and sadness, being burnt out, stressed out. So So I think it's helpful to think about that. I guess as a follow-on question, I'm wondering if you, though I know you're not a doctor, but through your own experience and working with lawyers with depression, as a law student, when do I start to think what triggers or signs should I be looking for of like, oh, maybe I do need to go see a doctor? So when does sadness become too sad or tired become, you know, too tired? Like what signs can you look for? to know that maybe you're crossing over from the normal to the abnormal? Well, they know, uh, you know, according to uh, the DSM-3, the DSM-5, which is the, the Bible for psychiatrists, they talk about a number of symptoms. But one thing they talk about also is the length of the symptoms. How long do they last? And uh, they talk about, generally speaking, about two weeks. So you mentioned maybe feeling sad or your sleep If, in fact, you're feeling sad all the time and it goes on for a long period of time, say two, three, four weeks, something's wrong. You know, the person isn't responding to positive events. They can't be cheered up. Uh, One of the worst things you could say to somebody is snap out of it when they're in a depressed state. So when a person, uh, say a law student, sees themselves over a long period of time in a deeply saddened state, And not coming out of that state, you know, being at the bottom of a black well, that's trouble. And the other sign is uh, you mentioned sleeping. You know, most people have a pretty regular sleep schedule, you know, seven to eight hours. But when sleep, uh, I've known uh, law students and lawyers who will sleep until noon, which is a big departure from their normal schedule, or be unable to sleep despite being very tired. And it really... Where the rubber meets the road, it begins impacting their daily life. Uh, They start becoming more isolated. Their eating habits may change. Their grades, their performance may go down. So it's really a departure, a falling down what that person is normally like in their day-to-day life. Dan, when we were getting started, you talked about, you know, not just what you had for breakfast, but also um, that you went to the gym today. I know that's something during exam times that, you know, we're always told to maybe consider doing working out, eating well, sleeping well. Are those the best ways to combat depression besides obviously getting medical help? Or what are some other ways that we can overcome this? Well, you know, uh, we talk about exercise and one of the, I guess one of the ironies is that many people with depression don't have the energy to exercise. 
I've heard many times people saying, Dan, you know, I know what's good for me. I know I should be exercising, but I just can't do it. And that is, in fact, depression speaking, uh, you know, where a person feels low energy, low motivation. And what happens, it becomes a vicious circle. So for people, you know, and there's all there's a range of severity, mild, moderate and severe depression. But most of the time when people, you know, when they're in the more acute stage of depression, you know, when it's very serious, they usually don't have the, the stamina or motivation or energy to exercise. Uh, if it's more a mild depression or they've recovered from depression and are worried about, you know, staying on the ball and not going back into depression, exercise is a very, very powerful antidote to depression for a variety of reasons. It has profound effects on the brain and mood. The other thing that we see, which is spreading across the legal profession now in law schools, is mindfulness, mindfulness meditation. I guess when we think of meditation, we think of something maybe, you know, uh, esoteric, but in fact, it's a very simple practice. And there have been remarkable results in studies uh, that have looked at mindfulness meditation as a remedy to cope with depression, not only depression, but stress and anxiety. There's a wonderful book called The Mindful Way Through Depression. Uh, that's a wonderful resource. But there's also a young woman, a lawyer out on the West Coast in San Francisco named Gina. Uh, she runs a website called The Anxious Lawyer. And she puts on uh, mindfulness courses around the country. She's got a new book coming out on the, this topic. So exercise, you know, we talk about mindfulness meditation. Medication is helpful to some people. But I think that above and beyond medication, psychotherapy is really critical because people will take medication but not go to therapy. And what happens is, you know, uh, Medication's not a panacea. It won't fix the problem for most people. Most people need ongoing support and structure, and that can be provided by a therapist who can help that person work through and change their depressive thinking. Depressive thinking is a big part of it. You mentioned therapy and all those other tools in your toolbox. And I know for several of my classmates or our peers, you know, just taking that step is so, um, so intense, you know, to kind of pin yourself as, gosh, I'm somebody who suffers with depression. You know, there's the stigma that already exists around it. And we always receive assurances that uh, anything that we do will remain in confidence. But then we're asked to disclose these things as we prepare to apply for the bar exam. And so it's this series of mixed messages of it's a secret, but we, we have to disclose it and we don't know how to disclose it. What would your words of advice be for someone who's just isn't sure and thinks they need help, but thinks that that just might unleash a torrent of repercussions and side effects that they just don't want to deal with? I think that's a great question and it's a very common one. You know, the repercussions to a young lawyer of disclosing mental health problems. And I think it's different, you know, the remedy that or the solution to that is different in different situations. I always tell people, you know, they should be with a therapist and work this through and have a game plan for how they're individually, how they're going to handle their individual circumstances. But one of the things I think that helps is so often people in our profession don't 
you know, depression is happens to other people, not to lawyers. Lawyers are supposed to be supermen or superwomen. You know, they're they're supposed to solve problems and not have problems. And they want to be seen as strong. They want to be seen as winners, not losers. And I think the stigma connected with depression makes people feel like losers. I think that's true in the general population, but I think it's amplified uh, in the legal profession where, you know, you don't want to show any signs of weakness. You don't want to show any sign of vulnerability, not only with your adversaries in the court, but with your colleagues, you know. So I think that what happens so often, tragically, is that drives the problem further with the the depressed lawyer or the depressed law student. And they don't get help. They don't get help. Or they do get help and walk around feeling ashamed of themselves. Or the most tragic consequences is suicide, which is a big problem uh, with depression generally and with uh, lawyers. Lawyers have, uh, just like with depression, have much higher rates of suicide than the general population. And uh, I've known people who have attempted suicide, other lawyers, and I know, unfortunately, a few people who have committed suicide. And I think part of that is why that happens is they feel like there's no way out, there's no solution to their problems. And uh, many lawyers feel a sense of pride in their profession. And as depression, which is an illness, begins chipping away at their skills, their self-confidence, their self-esteem, they feel lost. They feel lost and oftentimes they feel ashamed. So what really this is about is, you know, what I tried to do by creating the website was really open a conversation, a national conversation about this topic. I think it's a critical topic in our profession so people could have a place to go, lawyers, law students, their loved ones, colleagues, and learn about depression generally and also about depression amongst fellow lawyers, law students, and judges. Prior to that, there hadn't been a place where they could go. And on the website, they read articles from other lawyers with depression, uh, their loved ones, experts. You know, it's a place where they can hopefully find some, um, some answers and some hope. So one question we really like to ask our guests that we have on the podcast is if you could go back knowing what you know now from your experience as a lawyer and, and just life in general, what advice would you give to yourself as a 1L starting your adventure in law school? I think one of the things I would have done differently is I would have sought out mentors earlier. I think I was a little bit uh, lost in law school, and I assumed that the same rules that applied as an undergraduate applied in law school, and, and they really, in so many ways, don't. At least at my law school, you know, we had one final exam, and that was your whole grade. You know, you didn't know how you were doing throughout the semester. I also came from a working class family, and I didn't know any other lawyers. You know, I didn't really know what it meant to be a lawyer. So I wish I would have had uh, a few mentors earlier in my law school career. Uh, I think quite honestly, I would have probably sought out treatment earlier. I didn't have depression in law school, but like many people with depression, it doesn't begin as depression. 
You know, it begins as something else. It might begin as anxiety or it might begin as poor stress management and being overwhelmed. Uh, Sometimes that's a sign and a signal that there's trouble to follow later on. So I think I wish I had somebody, a therapist to talk to about my experiences so I can kind of make sense of them. And I just didn't do that. I wish I would have done that. And I think third, I think Law school is very tough. It's very hard. Long hours involved in it. But it's a very, very noble profession. And I say to people, you know, in addition to mentors, in addition to a therapist, having heroes, people that inspire us, people who represent the kind of lawyers we want to be, I think uh, would have been invaluable to me. And because we hear so much negativity about lawyers and the legal profession, and I think we all need a guidepost to steer us in the direction of the kind of person we want to be and the kind of lawyer we want to be. And I just didn't have that in law school, but I think that would have helped enormously. Thank you. Who would you say are those heroes that now maybe after the fact you found for yourself lawyers that you want to be like? Well, You know, it's interesting you say that. I didn't know this. I guess most people don't. But Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, struggled with depression his whole life. There's a tremendously well-written book called Lincoln's Melancholy, How Depression Fueled a Presidency to Greatness. And we interviewed the author, who's a Lincoln expert, in the documentary uh, we filmed. And what I took away from it was that uh, here's this incredibly brilliant person who uh, was president during probably one of the worst times to be president in our history, was a compassionate man, eloquent man, and yet he struggled with depression his whole life. There was periods when he was younger that he was put on suicide watch. He was despondent many times in his life. His law partner, William Herndon, said, when you looked at Lincoln walking down the street, he dripped with melancholy which I think is a very powerful image. So to me, Lincoln is my hero, and I have a big picture of him in my law office. And the thing I like to think about him is not only was he a great president, he was a great lawyer. He's a great lawyer before he became president. You know, he's a lawyer just like me and like other lawyers. And he's a lawyer that struggled with depression. So We can't do too wrong by thinking of him as a great role model or a great hero. And I find a lot of comfort knowing that in my personal life and in my legal life, you know, I may deal with depression, but I can overcome it. And he's a great example of that. Speaking of the support system and mentorship, it got me thinking, what are the things, if you're not the one suffering from depression, but you have a colleague or a friend through law school or at work who is suffering from depression, what are the things that we can do to be supportive and to be helpful in understanding the struggle that they're going through? I think one of the things um, is that people who are worried or concerned or love the person who might be in trouble feel they don't have permission to talk to that person or broach this topic. And a lot of it has to do with stigma. Some of it has to do with they don't want to impinge on the privacy of the person. But I think if a person really cares and comes into addressing this topic uh, with a good heart, it goes a long way. And so many lawyers I've known and depressed people in general have really been grateful that that happened. They were actually hoping it would happen, that someone 
would see how much trouble they're in, that someone would see how much distress they're in. Because these people, you know, who, who struggle are trying very hard to look normal, trying very hard to cover it up, hoping no one would notice. But at the same time, and it's a great irony, there's an inside of them, they're hoping someone will notice and uh, reach out to help. So I think the best thing that people who are concerned can do is in their own, and it might be a very modest way, say, hey, you know, you look like you've been more tired than usual. You look like you're dragging around the office. You seem more sad lately. That's one conversation they can have, and it doesn't have to be a big dramatic thing. They can also learn about depression themselves before they broach this topic with the person. And there's lots of resources out there to find out about that, one of which for lawyers is my website. But there's a lot of things that a person who's concerned about somewhat depression shouldn't say, you know, such as snap out of it or go on a vacation or this is just a rough patch you're going through. You know, these bromides don't work. They do not work. So I think they need to become educated themselves and they need to feel that they, they have to feel that it's okay to actually approach somebody with this problem. You know, one of the ways that you talk about addressing this or educating these friends or supporters that see others around them struggling with depression or maybe even uh, struggling with depression themselves are uh, by using the, the resource of your website, lawyerswithdepression.com. And also you reference your documentary, uh, which also has that word melancholy in it, a terrible melancholy depression in the legal profession. So those are available on your website and YouTube. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about why you created those and something maybe for law students to keep their eye out for as they look at those resources? Well, first, the film was created because so often, as I began this work, educators, legal educators around the country or bar association leaders, they recognize that this is a huge problem. Depression is an enormous problem. And so often they, they say or they said to me over the years, but we don't know how to talk about it. What do we, you know, how do we address it? You know, I'm a legal educator. I'm a dean of students. I don't have depression. So it was really in response to that need that we created the 30-minute documentary so we could say to these people, these concerned people, here you go, just plug it in. Here's a 30-minute film that covers what depression is, covers law school, lawyers, judges, and it talks about some solutions. And the title, a Terrible Melancholy, is in fact from uh, Lincoln, taken from Lincoln. We interviewed a Lincoln scholar in the film in New York City, and that's what he said. He said, you know, all his life, Lincoln struggled with a terrible melancholy. So we chose that as the title of our film. We interview experts on depression in Seattle, Washington, and New York City. We talk to lawyers. We talk to a law student. We talk to a judge. So that film can really tell somebody quite a bit about depression in the legal profession. The website really... When I started it eight years ago, pretty much everybody around me thought this was an awful idea, just a terrible idea. They said, you know, Dan, you're a litigator, you're a managing partner at a firm. Why would you want to associate yourself with the title mental illness or depression? You know, clients will fire you. Colleagues will, you know, make fun of you. I had a, a good friend of mine who was a, a judge 
took me to lunch and said, you know, why can't you do this anonymously? My feeling was that, you know, and I said this to him, why should I have to do this anonymously? You know, isn't that part of the problem? If I had heart disease or other problems, would you be saying that, that I should do this anonymously? You know, and I think that spoke volumes to the stigma that surrounds this illness. So I think I started the website and some of it, to be honest with you, was out of a sense of anger, like indignation, and that these people out there, and there's hundreds of thousands of them, lawyers with depression, didn't have a place to go, didn't have a place to try to understand, you know, what was going on with them and their careers. So my hope was to have built a house like that, build a place for them to come. They could shut their door and learn about it and hopefully get help if they're not getting it. And if they are getting help, find encouragement to keep going. Well, thank you. That's quite an interesting backstory on how the website and documentary came to be. And I appreciate that. I think that would be something really useful, not just to show at my law school, but potentially at our ABA annual meetings that brings together so many law student leaders from across the country. And I encourage our listeners to check it out. Well, let me ask you, when you said you started to notice this when you were close to 40, what was the moment where you said that you needed to, to do something about it? When was it that you finally were able to pick yourself up off the ground? Uh, I know you talked about being unable to sleep and maybe some hints or nods, a, an issue that might have been developing earlier in your life. But what is something that really changed the course for you and that you could give us or any of our listeners who might be struggling with this to kind of turn the corner on this issue? Well, for me, the turning point really came one night. I was driving home from work and it was dark out and I was listening to a radio show called, it was on National Public Radio. It's a popular show called Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And uh, I was... I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's my favorite show. And, you know, I was driving home and uh, as I was listening to the show... The guest on the show wasn't saying anything particularly melancholy or sad, but I was crying nonetheless. And I found myself crying quite a bit. I could never cry in front of other people, uh, but I would drive to parking lots, park in the back of a Target store or go in a stall and cry. What was different about it, I guess, was it really wasn't cathartic. The crying didn't bring me any relief. And it was just chronic uh, sadness and weeping. So this one particular night I drove home and I was listening to Fresh Air. They were finishing there at the end of the show and I was parked in my driveway with the garage door down. I hadn't gone in the house. And she had said, you know, you can purchase the best of Fresh Air and it was called Driveway Moments. You know, for people like me who uh, just couldn't stand leaving the show without hearing the final few minutes. But for me, you know, driveway moments was really powerful sadness, powerful despondency, a feeling of hopelessness that this was not going to change, you know, that my ship was not turning around and things were only getting worse. And as I sat there in the driveway, I thought of my wife and family, my young children inside, and I thought about how much they needed me and how much they loved me. So it was really, it was really for me, the turning point and getting help was really trying to put them first. And uh, 
thinking that I needed to get better for them. And uh, that's what started me getting the help and started my recovery. But I think, you know, a misnomer, not misnomer, but a misunderstanding is so often people think, oh, well, you know, Dan, you've recovered from depression and it's great. And, you know, you know, you're helping people. And I say to them, I haven't recovered from depression. It's not something like I've defeated. You know, I still have depression. I have periods of feeling pretty well and then I have periods of feeling awful. And I think that it's a nice, neat story when others feel, oh, well, you know, it's uh, like the top 10 things you can do to beat depression. You know, you, you, here's the 10 things you do and you defeat it and everything goes on normally. For m- many people, depression is a chronic condition and, you know, they struggle with it on and off throughout their life. And I think that the turning point, though, got me the help I needed and, uh, you know, it really saved my life. And I have a very happy um, family and uh, uh, thankfully, thank God, uh, you know, an okay legal career too. Thank you, Dan, for just your honesty and for being vulnerable with us and our uh, many, many listeners out there. That's just very powerful. And I hope that we can also have the courage to face this if we struggle with it and to help those around us who um, may be facing this and want to be able to get a hold of it if not overcome it, but at least be stronger and, and know how to, to deal with it and negotiate it. Thank you for just an awesome, awesome interview for your words and for your story. I uh, was thinking that based on that, what's a, a life's motto or, or life's mantra that you maybe say to yourself or how would you put your calling into words? Is there something that you tell yourself that helps you um, kind of refocus every day? Yes, actually there is. There's two things. One is uh, a quote from Helen Keller, you know, the woman who was deaf, blind, uh, and she once wrote that life is full of suffering, but it's also full of the overcoming of it. And I think that's a powerful thing uh, because it is full of suffering. And if we look around ourselves, there's people struggling all the time. But that's not the end of the sentence. The other part is that it's also full of the overcoming of it. And I think, you know, it can be overcome. It can get better. There is hope. And we just have to put one foot in front of the other. I think the other thing that I think about in terms of helping other people with depression, uh, I just, uh, real quickly, there's this story about Mother Teresa, who's one of my heroes, along with Lincoln. and. Uh, She came to America and there were all these reporters and they were flashing light bulbs and pictures and everyone wanted to talk to her. And she's very short. She's like 4'11". And one hard-boiled reporter asked her, you know, well, what does God expect of people? And she said something so simple but true. And she said, you know, God just expects us to be a loving presence to other people. And when I think about helping other people... You know, they're no different than me. They're human beings just like me. And, you know, maybe I can't, you know, fix things or I can't make things better sometimes, but I can be a loving presence to them. And sometimes it's the simplest things that are the most profound with um, healing people. So those are the two things I uh, think about a lot. 
Thank you so much. That I think is very inspiring and I think it has left us and hopefully our listeners with a lot to think about and good reflection, self-reflection to be had about you know, how we're doing, how those around us are doing and what we can do to better support each other and to support ourselves. So thank you so much for this great conversation and for joining us today on this podcast. Well, you know, I have to say it was a great privilege to talk to you and thank you for all the work you're doing and thank you for bringing this conversation to the legal community. Our absolute pleasure, Dan. Thank you again for just a really great interview, for a great conversation and joining us today. Besides reaching you at your two websites, right, uh, lawyerswithdepression.com and now this new one that you're launching here or that's already launched, yourdepressioncoach.com, what's the best way for our listeners to reach out to you? Uh, By far is the Lawyers with Depression website. It's something I look at every day. There's a contact sheet and uh, people are welcome to visit the site and contact me. So that's the best way. All right. Well, great. That's awesome. And we'll also encourage our listeners to uh, not just check out those websites, but also watch the documentary. It's short and sweet, so we can squeeze that into our uh, already rigorous schedules. (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed another episode of the ABA Law Student Podcast. We'd like to encourage you to subscribe to our show on iTunes. And once you've done that, take a moment to rate and review us as well. You can also tweet to us at, at ABALSD and use the hashtag LawStudentPodcast to tell us what's on your mind. I'm at Fabiani Duarte. And I'm at Madison Burke, signing off. Thank you for listening. Work hard, play smart. And until next time, podcasters. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.